Let me remind us why we are in 2 Timothy when we're studying Acts. Here, let me just show you where this is going to eventually go. We're going to finish Paul's discourse to the Ephesian elders eventually. But the reason we're in 2 Timothy last time and this time is that 2 Timothy is giving us important details. Paul in Acts had uh, addressed the Ephesian elders. Then all the things that happened, that was in Acts 20, then he got 21 through the end of Acts. Paul is up in prison in Rome, and he's writing from Rome to Timothy. Timothy's in Ephesus, which was the place where the issues, some of the issues were laid out, and Paul predicted certain things would happen. In Timothy's time, now, later, what Paul predicted is, predicted is happening. And we have details now about the issues. And then Paul's address in First and Second Timothy, we covered some material in First Timothy, you have more details that help us understand the biblical definition of the church and the ministry of church leadership, the elders. And so that's why we're doing this. It's very, very important material. I mentioned one other time that a book that's inspired me to study this uh, really for the last couple of years or more was a book I bought in the early 70s that was published in 1965 called The Torch of the Testimony by John W. Kennedy, who was a British missionary in India. And his claim was that church history has understood throughout for, for centuries is not defining the biblical church, but the institutional church. And that the church defined in the Bible is not an institution, but a living organism attached to the head, Jesus Christ. And that the institutions tend to go other places and go astray and go into apostasy and create massive structures that have to be supported by people who no longer then are functioning as the body of Christ with the witness of Christ. The torch of the testimony would be God preserves his remnant or his elect even within the institutions, but if they don't find each other and become a functioning fellowship of the body of Christ, they'll just be squelched by the institutions. They'll be persecuted by the institutions. They'll be silenced by the institutions. Because the institutions exist to make themselves bigger, more powerful, more influential, and to have more uh, obedience from their followers. And as institutions turn into something that doesn't even look like the gospel, you see what many of us have seen, and many people we know came out of institutional churches when we were born of God. But what we see in our day, which we often call apostasy, is evangelicalism going the same way. But there's no reason to be surprised about that. The evangelicalism of the turn of the 20th century from the 19th to 20th century is now the institutional church as well. And Eric and I have testified about that because that's how we met each other, wondering how an institution could be promoting things that are antithetical to the gospel. Well, it always happens. So... In order to define the church biblically, we're focusing on Acts, particularly now Paul's address to the Ephesian elders, and then focusing on Ephesus at the time of Timothy's ministry there as Paul's in prison. And this is so revealing. I'm excited about this. I'm glad Eric's here. He's taught through this recently. And this section will really help us focus on something it's so obviously true, and it's just flat-out missed. It's just flat-out missed. It doesn't even get on the radar 
of massive so-called evangelical institutions. Let me read it. 2 Timothy 2, 21 to 22. Therefore, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor, sanctified, useful to the master, prepared for every good work. Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Now, last time as we looked at uh, someone, uh, Eric, or somebody with a mic there, read verse 20, 20, 19 and 20. I took that off of my side. Uh, And that's the setting. It talked about vessels of honor and dishonor. That's me. Go. Okay. This is regarding him and Aeson Philetus in verse 19. It says, Who have swerved from the truth, saying that the resurrection has already happened. They are upsetting the faith of some. But God's firm foundation stands, bearing this seal. The Lord knows those who are his, and let everyone who names the name of the Lord depart from iniquity. Yes, thank you. And uh, Eric and I were able to talk on the phone this week. And that that discussion about Hymenaeus and Philetus who claimed the resurrection already happened very similar to some things that Eric's been dealing with in his videos that he's putting out on eschatology what it becomes clear and the more I study this and Eric studying it and this uh, John W. Kennedy who wrote in 65 when your eschatology is wrong your ecclesiology is wrong as well. That always happens. Because if you can't define the purpose of the church, the teleos, the where it's going, uh, then you can't define the message of the church or the mission of the church and ultimately the actual identity of the church is compromised. And that is so obvious. Now, I didn't see it for decades. And now it's just clear and obvious and undeniable. And um, that we will explore as we continue to look at the nuances of this. Now, it says, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, what are these things? False teaching like Hymenaeus and Philetus, vessels of dishonor, and honor in the same house. The dishonor would be Hymenaeus and Philetus and others like him, or those who are uh, outside of the bounds of Christian doctrine and behavior. Vessels for honor are those um, would be who cleanses himself from these things, cleanses ekathiro, ekathiro, which is used in 1 Corinthians 5, 6. Clean out the old leaven. So there's an analogy like you find in 1 Corinthians 10 of the Passover. You can have the Passover, you've got to clean out all the leaven. So the church has to be comprised of those willing to do that. And this leaven includes false doctrine, Hymenaeus and Philetus, and uh, affirming immoral behavior, which God has condemned, and unwillingness to be conformed to church discipline and what's fitting for the Christian, and to grow in the grace and knowledge of God and exhibit fruits. Now, this is a process, but it's a necessary one. And what happens is when the church is no longer defined biblically, the house is full of vessels of dishonor but it's still called the church. And nothing is in place that's going to change that. And if uh, what ends up being in place, because they see there's problems, is everything else that's not like what we read here. In other words, psychological theory, deterministic philosophies, uh, learning how to administrate like a business so that you can function even if 
95% of the people don't even know Christ. You can still function as a church. Conversion is optional. That's exactly what it looks like. And then the next generation literally, dear ones, become hostile to Christians. Christian institutions persecuting Christians and driving them away. Just as vehemently as secular ones do. Your beliefs are not tolerable. The same things, the same issues. If you believe God created male and female, and that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that there's sanctity in that, Christian institutions drive people out just as much as governmental ones do. I'm not making this up. And I think you know that I'm not. But that shows you that the institution is not the church. Because the Hymenaeus and Philitus would be given a raise, given a position of honor, rather than, well, you've got to cleanse yourself from these things. Cleanses uh, is uh, used to clean out the old leaven, do a house cleaning. This would include removing the dishonorable, this is in my notes that I wrote, such as Hymenaeus and Philitus and their followers. So that's what these things references in context. Yes. I just, want to, I just want to actually offer up some proof of what you just said because when we do uh, street evangelism, I think every, I was just looking around to see if some of the other guys were here, but I would say that there's so many times we run into young people and we approach them and say, would you like to learn about the Bible? Would you? And they say, oh, I know all of that stuff. I, I was raised Catholic or Lutheran or whatever, and I don't have any time for it. You know, they think they know all of this because they've been taught yeah. false things, and, and it becomes very difficult to even get them willing to talk to you. Yes, uh, I know when I was in Bible college in the early 70s, um, they said people are, quote, gospel-hardened. Actually, what people are are sin-hardened. And they've heard the gospel, and it bounces off like a water off a duck because they, it's not, they're not born of God, and so it doesn't, it, that doesn't penetrate to the heart. If you know the Lord Jesus, and you run into somebody else who does as well, who has a vital connection to the head, Wherever they are under whatever auspices that you might meet such a person, you immediately have a connection. And maybe there's some differences that if we just go back to the authority of Scripture, those will be sorted out. We'll get down to what God said. But we have a connection because we're attached to the head. Yes, brother. That, that happened to me personally. I grew up in a Christian home where we grew up Baptist. We knew everything. You know, we were leaders in society. And... It, it hit me in my mid-40s. There was a compilation of a bunch of things that happened to me. And I went out to the Lord and said, Lord God, what do I not understand? I don't understand the gospel. Teach me the gospel. And from that time forward, the Lord opened up my eyes to the gospel of Christ, which I already thought I knew. I thought the gospel was about me making a commitment to Jesus. And the Lord says, no, your commitment means nothing to me. It's my commitment to you that is everything. That's the gospel. Um, oh, in other there, words, it's not what we do for God, what he did for us. Yeah, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that God loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation Amen. for our sins. But there's one more thing, and that is, um, um, oh, what was that? I'm getting old now. I can't remember my thoughts. You mean you're over 40? Yeah, yeah, shoot. It was a good thing, too. Oh, well. <laughs> It'll come back. Let me, let me point something out. Diane and I watched baseball games together. Have you seen these things they put in a banner for a lot of money? Uh, in different gear. Well, I, I, we're not Twins fans, so, so be it. But they do it in a lot of stadiums. As you see, if you see away games, you'll see it. What does it say? Jesus believed in his teammates, too. 
and then it'll say, Jesus believes in you. And some, I heard that some billionaires who wish we remain anonymous started that movement. It's called He Gets Us. Okay, that's even worse. What you said, Rich, is not right. That's even worse. Now, man, man becomes the object of God's faith rather than God being the object of our faith. That's a reversal. And so that banner comes up right behind a batter. And Diane says, what's that? He believes in his teammates. Jesus believes in us even without a rally cap. I saw that one. No, this is not... Have they read the gospel? Didn't Jesus call fishermen to believe in him who had their own lives going their own way? And so this is a feel-good religious idea that's antithetical to the gospel that says repentance for forgiveness of sins must be proclaimed in his name to all the nations that we're facing God's wrath. And that's why eschatology always matters. Don't listen to anybody who says it doesn't. Because if you have bad eschatology, your definition of the gospel will change your definition of the church will change even if you claim it won't. The one thing that will go away is the need to flee from the wrath of God. I just finished that whole book I've been telling you about. i got to sit down and make an outline. Go ahead, Rick. I just remembered it. It's John chapter 9. Jesus was arguing with the Pharisees about a blind man who was healed. And Jesus said to the Pharisees, if you admitted you were blind, you could see. But now you say you see, so your sins remain upon you. So what he just said, what Eric just says, hey, I already know everything. I know everything. I already know everything. You're a perfect candidate for hell because you already know. But if you admitted that you didn't know, then the Lord could start teaching you. The Bible says the, believe, the demons believe and tremble, don't they? The demons know there's a God. Yes, dear ones, we, the only way, this is why we're looking at this so carefully. Thank you for allowing me to do this. This is working out probably a chapter of a book. I want to get feedback. I want to know what you run into and what happened so we can apply these things accurately. Okay, what happens is, the external liturgy, if you have one, the, the confessions, the process, the people, engine, the social engineering, whatever it takes to keep the institution successful, whether in, even if the founders built in layers and layers of legal stuff to keep anything from changing, it still changes. Because the descendants of the founders there's no guarantee they're Christians. I just showed Brian proof of that from Ezekiel 18 this morning as we were talking. Uh, and they will get around it. We talked to a pastor who visited because he's got responsibility. He was here on Good Friday and telling me that uh, there's a, an institution that has all that built in so that when things start to change, they, they're not allowed to change, but the people... Many of them aren't tolerating the gospel. So how do you get all these things that are decreed when there's a resistance to the gospel by people who are third, fourth generation descendants of the founders who want to keep the institution, but they can't tolerate the gospel? What happens? They'll kick out the gospel preacher and hire somebody else. That's what they do every time. Eric and I saw that, didn't we? we? Eric and I saw I met Eric was in that situation. There's not enough you can do because to make sure it can't change. Here's why. The church is born of God, not of human institutions. The church is born of the Holy Spirit. And those who are born again through the gospel are attached to the head, no matter what people think when they're looking at us or any one of us. 
We'll get to that when we get to 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, everyone attached to the head is essential to the body, is loved by God, has a relationship with God that's so vital that they'll end up finding somebody else who's attached to the head and try to find fellowship because the institution can't provide it. The institution can provide programs to process people, but it can't provide a vital, powerful, God-centered, Christ-centered, biblical relationship to Christ, the head of the church. That's the difference. And what the, the thing that causes the greatest resistance, and I've been in the ministry for almost 50, 50 years actually now, uh, is that people will sacrifice anything for their children, sometimes even their faith, sort of. In other words, if the child isn't born of God, we'll create something where the church works for them anyhow. Do you see what I'm saying? I'm not here to offend anybody. I'm telling you, we don't control the process. God does. We preach the gospel. Some of our children are born of God. Some, we want them to learn. It's not wrong to teach the faith to our children. In fact, we're obligated to. But the result is in God's hand. It's better to accept that my kid isn't serving God than to create an institution that will work even if that remains the case. It's the evangelical royalty, second and third, fourth generation children of the leaders that undermine the church. They'll be the pro-abortion and pro-gay marriage and all of that stuff because that's their group. They were born into it. They served in it. And they're going to make sure people get what they want. But if somebody's born of God, they won't listen to that because they know it's not from God. Go ahead. What was funny about that Ezekiel this morning was not funny, haha, but, and I paraphrase, God is saying to the Jews, oh, so you think you know what's right. So he's chastising them. They think they know what's better for them than what he knows. And he says, no, because you'll end up basically with eternal death. So man thinks that he knows more than God knows. Mm -hmm. And he's the one that wrote it here. And yet people don't want to do that. They want to do their own thing. Well, the point is we want to control the process. Institutions can control their own processes, but we can't control the work of the spirit who regenerates. And that is taught very clearly in John chapter three, like the wind. And you see the result. What is the result right here? If anyone cleanses himself from these things, he will be a vessel for honor. Sanctified. Can anyone... You can cleanse yourself from the Hymenaeus and Philetus of the world and cleave to the Lord, as Timothy's urged to do, and not compromise with the wicked doctrines and practices. So the vessel for honor is the vessel to honor God. And that's the point I make on my title here, to honor God. The church defined biblically will always want to honor God. And God brings honor to his own name by saving people who had nothing going for them, who were lost, hopeless, nothing to contribute, without hope in the world, without God, converting them through the gospel, changing lives, forgiving sins, empowering by God's grace and by the indwelling Holy Spirit and bringing us into different lives that are honorable by God's grace, not by being better than somebody else. Sanctified, meaning set apart for God. Honor, team A is the word there. The word for honor, team A, 
implies that that which has that which has value, which is in this context, be an honorable and valuable calling and ministry for the benefit of God's household. So biblical ministry is this, a valuable calling and ministry for the benefit of God's household. God's calling to the elders, which we're t- studying, Acts 20, doing uh, excurses in the 1 t- 2 Timothy 2, same church, Ephesus, same issue, elders, uh, honorable for God's use. Honorable for God's use might be smaller. And that's anathema to the institution. If you're in charge of an institution and it gets smaller, you will be punished. You will be fired. Yet the institution must get bigger or you fail. The institution must win or you're like the baseball team, general manager. Okay. But the body of Christ isn't a baseball team. It must get honorable, not necessarily bigger, although the kingdom is always growing. The witness of every evangelist that goes out, every person who shares their faith, everyone who hears the gospel wherever they hear it, everyone who's born of God is built upon the foundation, added to it. The kingdom is growing. The family of God is growing. The fellowship may not, we may not even see many of the people who came to faith when they heard our witness because God's the one who does it, we'll meet them in eternity. Sometimes we meet them here. It isn't the size of the particular group. You can see that from the addresses to the churches in the Revelation. But the honor that is brought to God, useful to the master. What's useful to the master? Does God need a billion dollars so he can put a billboard up saying Jesus believed in his teammates? No. No. That's not useful for the master. Prepared for every good work. So every good work would be that which is defined in the scripture. Um, I pointed out in my notes here, for, uh, for honor likely has an eschatological implication, commenting on that phrase there, uh, as well, because uh, I want to turn here. Go ahead and turn to Romans 2, 7 and 8. I want to show you that honor has to do also with eschatology. And that's why I say eschatology always affects ecclesiology. The doctrine of the end times and the doctrine of the church are have to be compatible and biblical. Romans 2, 7 and 8. Those who by persevering and doing good seek glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. Notice that, Romans 2, 7. The word honor appears there too. The honor that we may, that we will receive doesn't necessarily happen in this life. We might be considered a scum of the earth. We might be considered those people, those problem people, and so on. So, but look at what it says. It's eschatological. Persevering and doing good for glory, honor, and immortality, eternal life. Verse 8, notice also the eschatology. But to those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, Obey, un, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. So this, the outcomes in both cases are eschatological. Immortality, eternal life, eternal honor. Hallelujah. Wrath and indignation. Here's what we, it's, it's clearly and obviously true. No one without genuine faith that God has given will ever believe that it's worth even thinking about those things. Because 
You know, dear evangelists, and we're all evangelists in some context, people that don't believe in God aren't that worried about hell. I wasn't. I didn't believe it. Honestly, I've said often over the decades, hell is the most talked about place ever deemed not to exist. People send each other there verbally, and then they say there is no such place. Or maybe if there is, it's just Hitler there. But it's in the Bible. Go ahead. You know, Bob, over the last few weeks, I've been thinking about how to boil down the importance of eschatology regarding our overall view and our ecclesiology. And I thought about the difference between premillennialism, amillennialism, and postmillennialism, and they all have to do with Israel. Think of Israel is the greatest institution. It's a nation. If you're premillennial, you say there's a plan for future Israel. We don't have to be it. If you're post-millennial, you have to create Israel. If you're amillennial, you are Israel. Those are the differences. So all of a sudden, your ecclesiology changes. If you're Israel, now we can baptize infants. Why? Well, because they circumcised infants. So your whole ecclesiology changes. If you're post-millennial and you have to create Israel, well, now you better start getting involved with politics to bring about the kingdom. But if you're premillennial, you're not Israel. There's a future plan for Israel. Now you can be the church. Now you can be the gathering of the called out ones who have fled from the wrath of God by faith in Christ. That's what you can do. So either you're trying to create Israel, post-millennial, you think you are Israel, amillennial, or you know that there's a plan for Israel, you're premillennial. Right. That's the significance, I think. Right. And I, I'm sorry I gave you the wrong pages in that book. It was actually 50 and 51. It's a post-millennial book. They don't call themselves that, but that's what it is. The idea of fleeing from the wrath of God is absent. It's about building culture and Christianizing people so that it's, the world gets better as it becomes encased in, you know, in a Christian worldview or infused with a, a better word for a Christian worldview. And I would certainly love to live under a Christian worldview. But at this point, it's not what's prevailing. But it's the mission of the church to create a culture. In other words, the majority of the people who are creating this millennial kingdom are going to be unregenerate. And so how, here's the question. Look carefully here what we have highlighted. Here's my question to the post-millennialists who want to create a Christianized culture and call that the fulfillment of Matthew 28, making disciples of nations. Who do you, once you do whatever it is you claim needs to be done, absent any concern about the wrath of God against sin in, in, in the eschaton, and pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Here's what I want to know. How do these pagan nations who you're going to Christianize get a pure heart without the powerful work of the Spirit of regeneration, sanctification, and so on. How is a Christianized culture calling on God with a pure heart? And they mock us. They mock us and they call us defeated. We're defeated before we even went into the battle, they say. Because we believe that God's going to uh, bring us to himself as his bride. And this isn't just the intellectual version of postmillennialism. It's also, also the new apostolic reformation version of postmillennialism. As I quoted this George Warnock, they think, they, they're talking about us, they think that Christ is going to return for a miserable, sick, defeated church. So if you get old and sick, you're defeated. Christ isn't interested in coming for you. That's to you. Get the victory, and maybe once we get the victory, God will come. But they don't even look for that. They look for us to defeat his enemies. Yes, Paula. Paula. Uh, 
I, I, I never understood when I read uh, John that there are there are many antichrists among us now, and I didn't understand that until I understood uh, postmillennialism uh, uh, and, and anti-meaning instead of Christ. So we're going to build this kingdom instead of Christ. To be antichrist is a fearful and sobering thing. And um, it, it, in the church, it, it, it looks like us building the kingdom. In the world, it looks like uh, uh, the world building utopia. But it's all anti-Christ, and it's very sobering. Thank, thank you, Paul. A good comment. Let me explain something. You're, you're right. The anti, anti-Christos, there's two uh, usages of anti, that at least. One would be uh, against, against Christ, but the other is in place of. And some of the scholars have pointed out, and I think they're right, that... Antichrist literally is uh, attacking or against the true Christ by replacing Christ with something, someone else. Okay? And we know what that would be. We, saw, we see the prophecies and we see the literal fulfillment. Someone who can do signs and wonders. You see that in Eric's doing the work. I refer everybody to you, Eric. I'm offload to the person who's immersed in it. But isn't that the correct? I, Antichrist replaces the Christ by being a fake version of it by what happens. You can read that. But they've, they, you know, that's in the history of, of um, institutional Christianity. But look at what it says here. Let's get, keep going. Sanctified, hagiazo, perfect passive participle, prepared, and tomazo is a perfect passive participle, which means to make ready. And it's used of John the Baptist from Isaiah 40 and verse 3 in Luke 178. So, uh, sanctified and prepared. Sanctified and prepared. Prepared for every good work. So God sanctifies, and then he's the one who would take, for instance, John the Baptist and give him the ministry of preparing the way for the Lord. Okay? So I would just go back to the idea of eschatology and ecclesiology. The biblical message is preparing for the coming of the Lord not by creating the kingdom now on earth, composed mostly of the unregenerate who are just polished up on the outside, but by adding citizens, our citizenship is in heaven, by preparing vessels for honor, by preparing for the marriage supper of the Lamb, and calling sinners to repentance. And the message of the church is repentance for forgiveness of sins. The Matthew 28 one that's misused, make disciples of the nations, is doing uh, an invalid word game. Changing the definition of a disciple to make it sound like it's a geopolitical entity. So the nation is discipled, ethne, rather than individuals. So I response, and Eric and I got a chance to talk about this on the phone because he's teaching through Matthew. How does Matthew define a disciple? See, context is everything when you're studying the Bible. So you go all the way through Matthew, disciples, 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 disciples. And then you get to the end, make disciples of the nation, all of a sudden it has a different meaning. Before it meant building on the rock. Before it meant going through the narrow gate. Before it meant forsaking all else to follow him. Before it meant not building a kingdom on this world and later being told, thou fool, 
Okay, now who will have what, what you prepared for? Before it meant the prodigal son coming to the relationship with the father. You go through these things. Well, I was in Luke, but uh, so I asked uh, Eric, what's a disciple in Matthew? It's not a geopolitical entity. It's a person. And the disciples' prayer is not a prayer for post-millennial kingdom. It's a prayer for the prayer for the return of Christ. Go ahead, Eric. I set it up on the tee. Go for yeah, it. Yeah, it just it's, don't hit it in the rough. Huh? <laughs> no, it just struck me that think of Doug Wilson as Paul. That was talking about post-millennialism. Oh yeah, they're going to build the kingdom by creating these geopolitical institutions. But by definition, if you are the head of a geopolitical institution, you have status. The disciples of Jesus in Matthew don't have status. So how can the president of the United States not have status? How can the Supreme Court leader not have status? Well, they have because of their position. But if you're a believer in Christ, you don't have status. And so what I'm saying is in Matthew 28 and what Bob is getting at, is the disciples we are creating can't be geopolitical entities because then you wouldn't have the call by Christ to say, don't worry about your status, become like a child. The becoming like a child isn't that we become naive, ignorant, unlearned, but rather we don't care about our status. That is antithetical Amen. to the other eschatologies that say, well, no, you have to take over the world, as it were. Yeah, the, as it is, we're the near, we have to go through the narrow gate. Amen. And the world hates us. And the religious institutions do, too, even the Christianized one. Just as in Israel, the leaders had become institutionalized, and they hated the work of God. Yes. Remember Lazarus, Lazarus raised from the dead? Yeah, in John 12. John 11, he's raised. John 12, the institutional leader said, now what are we going to do? Because everybody's believing in Christ. And the Romans will come and take our place from us. They were more concerned about right standing with Rome than seeing the need. This man raised a man from the dead who was already rotting. A four-day one, as Eric tells us. Well, we better kill. So they plotted to kill Lazarus. Okay. It's stunning. It's stunning. Why would they kill a man Jesus raised from the dead? Because what was in danger was their institutional status. Read John 12. I, I covered this on Good Friday. They were worried about their status. Rome held that in its hands, but Jesus was giving them an opportunity for a greater status which was be a child of God, born of the Spirit. Which one is more important? Yes, brother. Yeah, by, by nature, we all want status. I mean, the disciples were constantly bickering amongst themselves. Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? How many times that come up? And um, Jesus, he said, hey, forget about it. The greatest guy ever was John the Baptist, guy who ate locusts out in the woods, you know, and wore sackcloth. He goes, but Ever, whoever's less than John is greater than he. In other words, I love what you said. We don't have status. We really don't. We're losers in the world's eyes. You know, we're a bunch of scraggly people, you know, who show up, some of us unshaven even. But um, the world sees us and they're like, what? But we have something the world doesn't have. And we try to communicate to them and they're like, whatever, dude, I'll go to the place where I'm entertained, you know, I'll, where the dog and pony show is, is happening, you know, where you guys don't have it going on. So that I love what you guys are saying. We don't have status, and that's the way God had set it up. Yeah. But even by nature, the disciples were arguing all the time, who's greatest, who's greatest? Jesus went out of his way. Here's a child, you know, forget about it, being great. Whoever's the greatest is the least, the biggest servant. And right. that's what we got to understand. And then... That doesn't mean there aren't different roles and that God can't use rich people. Look at Lydia in Acts. Lydia was a key person in the church of Philippi. But that's not what made her important. What made her important was how God used her to facilitate the meeting of the church. God will use each one, whoever we are. So if we define the church 
biblically as the body of Christ attached to the head, an organism, not an institution, who ultimate praise will come from God, who wants to be a vessel for honor by his grace so that there will be eschatological honor, however we're deemed by our friends and family and coworkers in this world, that's what we're here for. But the idea to create a culture so that the culture will praise us for being good Christians is, I'm tempted to call it Pollyanna eschatology. I may do it. I got to write an article about this, but I'm a little worried that because of my age, a lot of young people don't know who Pollyanna is. <laughs> so maybe you can advise me if there's anybody young. Do you know who Pollyanna is? Now go ahead. I'm just trying to bring it back small, but that in what you have in green, it says that uh, because this is, again, right before Paul is uh, martyred, he's writing to his protege, Timothy. And so, you know, as encouragement and helping him understand what he is to do, but um, pursuing righteousness, faith, and love, he could have stopped with, with those who call on the Lord, but he qualified it with from a pure heart, those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. And um, we know in context, because we had it a couple weeks ago, um, Hymenaeus and Philetus were saying that the resurrection had already come. And like Eric pointed out to us, like the preterists who say the resurrection already had all happened in 70 AD. So when we look at in our lives then, because we all interact and brush elbows with people who call on the name of the Lord, I don't know if it's a pure heart or not, but are we talking kind of about syncretism? Is that as an example? You know, um, pursuing this righteousness, faith, and love from those who are purely committed to God's word as authority? Do you know what I'm trying to say? Yes. Uh, uh, here, let me explain the, the nuances of that. I, and I have here, I don't know if we'll get to it today, the Galatian reference to the fruits of the Spirit. The pure heart starts positionally with the blood of Jesus having cleansed us once for all. So the blood of Jesus cleanses us as we are calling on him in redemption and atonement and remembering what he did for us. The Lord's Supper remembers what he did. But there's a hope for later resurrection where we're truly and eternally purified uh, in a vessel for honor in eternity. For now, so there's some terminology used, and Eric has talked about that as well, the positional, the practical, and then ultimately the eschatological. Yes, go ahead. I was thinking how this passage is a contrast to Second Peter 2, where here Paul says in red, if anyone cleanses himself from these things, which are the wayward doctrine, wayward deeds, then they're sanctified. And Bob just pointed out that that's a passive participle. So God has set apart, set you apart, yeah. and you're prepared that's also a passive, so that's a divine passive. Yep. yep. So if you cleanse yourself from the wayward doctrines and deeds, you prove who you are, one who's set apart for the Lord. In Second Peter 2, the unregenerate are like the dog that goes back to its vomit and like the pig, that go, the swine that goes back to the mire. They show who they are by what they do. So if you cleanse yourself from wayward doctrine and deeds, you prove who you are. You're sanctified, set apart for God. But if you act in wickedness, whether it's doctrine or deed, you're like the dog going back to its vomit or the pig going back yeah, to the vomit. You're mire. showing that you still have the old nature. Exactly. You show your true so, yeah, That's a vessel for dishonor. Exactly. That's Hymenaeus and Philetus. So the truth will be appealing to those who know the Lord. Be, unless they're prejudiced against certain things because of whatever personal reasons. But I've said over and over, I believe it's biblical. Love for the truth is the best gift you can ever get from God because it'll get you to every other one. If you love the truth, you won't push away things that God has said because you don't like them. That's not a valid answer. Remember uh, the debate with uh, Craig Boyd 
I handed out all, we had all these verses out in the group I was in back then to a thousand people. We only had 400. We didn't know how many people were coming. And uh, I can remember the moderator used to be KKMS. He said, well, Bob has all these verses. Do you have verses? He said, do we have verses? Um, the point was, um, he was arguing from philosophy. He's a PowerPoint. His arguments were all philosophy. And I argued from scripture. Same thing happened with Doug Padgett. I argued from scripture. He argued from philosophy. And the thing that would cause us to not love the truth is when human philosophy is more appealing to us than the faith once we're all handed down to the saints. And so there's a lot of ways that could go. But if your heart is cleansed by the blood of Jesus, sanctified in that sense, perfect passive participle, uh, a vessel for honor, useful, prepared for every good work, which that's how anyone's prepared for every good work. By God's work of grace. Now look at the contrast here. You can't miss it. I didn't highlight flee. But notice, flee youthful lusts, pursue righteousness. So you flee from something and pursue something else. See the opposite? What you run from and what you run to says a whole lot about it. It's what you run from and what you run to shows whether you're a vessel for dishonor or vessel for honor. And this isn't works or pietism. It's a reality of what the church looks like. It's not that we don't have sins and guilt and things we need to be rid of, but we flee to the Lord and to the fellowship of the body of Christ and together ask God to help us flee from more stuff. Just help us, Lord. Cleanse me, Lord, and I will be clean as David said. And that's, it's not self-righteousness, it's God's gift and a, of a hunger for God to continue to change us and a realization that we need one another. Flee and pursue. Joseph fled and it cost him a lot of honor. He was a top-notch guy with one of the, the pharaohs who was the Antip... Antip- and who was the head guy who's Potiphar? Potiphar. Potiphar's wife lied about him. One of Joseph. He fled. He ran. He got out of there. And what, what was his reward for fleeing youthful lust? Thrown in jail. And then he helped a guy, told a guy, one of you will be released. But when you're released, remember me? Guess what he did? forgot him the world doesn't really care about you did you know the world doesn't care about you but God does and the church does pursue righteousness faith love and peace with okay now there's a word there too uh, well let me just read it couple statements I have here as we got five minutes that I wrote to make sure I didn't miss anything. Eschatology and ecclesiology are necessarily joined to one another. This is my statement. Hymenaeus and Philetus claim the resurrection already happened. Faulty eschatology. Such teaching harms the church because it changes what it means to be prepared uh, and what good works we are promoting. Have you seen people out there with placards promoting evil and they think they're promoting good works? And doesn't it shock you? How could you be promoting these wicked, evil things that are obviously evil and think you're doing something good? That's what the I'm an ace and phylitis type look like. Okay? Um, such teaching harms the church because it changes what it means to be prepared and what, what good works we are promoting. For example, Revelation 19, 7. 
let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come. His bride has made herself ready. Made herself ready is literally prepared herself using the same word prepared for every good work. The bride has made herself ready. Not that it's self works, but prepared for the, so we're preparing for the marriage supper of the lamb. The amillennials and postmillennials, or any who said the resurrection already happened, are preparing for positions in this world to make this world something it isn't, rather than call people out of the world into the kingdom. And they've got two pages where they mock us as basically we gave up. By preaching the gospel, telling people to plead for the wrath of God, become part of the future bride of the Lord. We're losers. We gave up, gave up the battle because they define the battle as Christianizing the world. But it's not true. Flee is imperative here uh, as, as it was in 1 Timothy 6.11. 1 Timothy 6.11. Flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, perseverance, and gentleness. So both in 1 Timothy 6.11 and here, Timothy's told to flee and to pursue. Flee and pursue. Isn't that a good message for young men and women? It's a good message for old men. All right. The youthful lust, epithumia, means strong desires. In this context, it means something sinful, forbidden. And then Galatians, which we don't have time for, but Galatians 5, 16 to 21, for the lust of the flesh. And these are uh, exemplary lists, not exhaustive ones. Ways of sinning keeps getting more creative in this wicked world. But it's what it looks like to not be attached to the head. Those who live by the desires of the flesh will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5.21. So even in Galatians 5, with a list of the lusts of the flesh, there's an eschatological point to it. Will not inherit the kingdom. You can pursue every lust imaginable and be president of the United States. Yeah. <laughs> Not a good idea, but it's been proven that some can do that. But the point is, the Christian is to pursue righteousness and faith and love, flee from those other things, and peace, shalom in the Old Testament, a reign in the New with those who call on the Lord, with others likewise. We can together help us each other as we're mocked by the world for being stupid fools for serving Christ. Now, I've got a minute. Let me finish this last statement I had in my notes here. With those who call on the Lord from pure heart, here's the statement I wrote about that. This shows why eschatology Ecclesiology are connected. We are prepared for good works, which is preparation for the marriage supper of the Lamb as well. The church must be those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. That defines the church, not composed of religious consumers with felt needs, not or is an institution composed of the descendants of Christians who are now held together by forms formalism, traditions, and the fear of loss of status with the religious culture, which usually includes the earthly family, mostly unconverted. Not that we don't want family members in church, but we have to pursue conversion. And God converts family members, but it's not universal. Ezekiel 18. One more sentence here. The liturgical church with pomp and formalism rarely is filled with, quote, those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. Because this only applies to the regenerate. You can say the right thing over and over and over and over again. 
and then find out, oh, uh, we don't believe in miracles. We don't believe that God ever raised anybody. We don't believe that Jesus walked on water. We don't believe there's a hell. We believe the good Lord wants all of us to get along. Well, that was the 60s. It's gotten worse now. It's become Eastern religion. Now it's this uh, altered state of consciousness and panentheism. So, dear ones, thank you for together talking out what the church looks like and how God can use us. And I, I so appreciate it. And we'll keep looking at 2 Timothy 2 until we get through that, and then we'll go back and finish Acts 20, and then um, I'll have no excuse other than to start writing. Okay, let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness, for your mercy and grace. Pray for Pastor Eric as he brings the word to us from Matthew. May our hearts be open, and may you give us grace to pursue righteousness, faith, hope, and love, and the good works that you've called us to, all to your honor and glory. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless.